I read an interview the other day about a young man named Oscar. He was 13 years old, and he invited a friend over to his house. It was a mansion. It's a pretty nice house. But his friend was fairly affluent, and they were hanging out. And as they were there, Hugh Jackman walked in. Do you guys know who Hugh Jackman is? You may know him better as Wolverines. <laughs> Hugh Jackman walked in, and his friend, Oscar's friend, was just struck dumb. He was uh, just shocked, starstruck, I guess. And uh, his friend just kept talking, and of course, Mr. Jackman greeted the boys and walked out. And his friend looked at him and said, what is he doing here? And his friend said, oh, it's just dad. Just coming home. Well, the boy was obviously a fan, and he uh, peppered Oscar with a lot of questions until Oscar, in frustration, said, Look, can you just not ask me any more questions about him? I've got to let you know, my dad is nothing like Wolverine. He's not cool. He's not tough in any way. It's really no big deal. Well, you know, if Hugh Jackman came walking in, I think it'd be a big deal. Don't you, don't you think it'd be a big deal? And yet, a lot of times, intimacy or familiarity can breed, if not contempt, can breed boredom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just dad. We become, as believers, really familiar with amazing truths. Things that ought to just make our jaws hit the floor. Things that ought to make us sometimes just starstruck. Ought to make us stand in awe and wonder, but because we have rehearsed them so much, sometimes we just get really comfortable with amazing truths. This morning, I want us to take a few minutes to rehearse and to remember, to reflect, to go deeper into some statements that if I were to ask you questions, if this were a Sunday school class and we gave you a quiz, you would you would be able to answer all the questions. It, mostly because Jesus is always the right answer in Sunday school, right? Uh, but but you would be able to answer all the questions, but I, I want us to kind of see what we can see with fresh eyes. And that's been my prayer for you. That's been my prayer for me. You see, in the Christian life, as it is in the nature of churches, I'm a pastor of a congregation, and I study churches, study congregations, as I study the Word of God. We can become wrapped up in maintenance and doing things that we've always done because, you know, you're supposed to do them. They're the right things. They're what we were taught. They've been our experience. They're just things that we know. And so we just want to maintain doing the right things. When a church gets in maintenance mode, it's, it, unless something happens, unless God intervenes, uh, it, its demise is coming. I can take you to church building after church building, uh, in Greenville, there's one not far from our property, where years ago it was a vibrant, growing church, reaching a community. Uh, and then uh, people got older, young people moved out, the neighborhood ten- changed uh, fairly significantly. Uh, through the years, they've got, we need to keep our building safe, we need to keep our people ministered to and cared for. Their concern, rather than reaching people, became making sure that the people who were coming would continue to come uh, to the greatest extent possible. Years pass, and if you haven't discovered this, you will at some point, people age. And uh, this church got down to about 11 active members, all of them senior adults. And their focus was 
on maintenance, simple maintenance, uh, which is a scary, scary place to be. And frankly, just to be abundantly clear, gives no glory to God, shows no life of God, no vitality, not accomplishing the purpose of God. Sometimes, though, somebody can come into a congregation like that. We call this revitalization in contemporary lingo. Somebody can come into a congregation like that, and they can help people get a new vision, help people understand clearly that Jesus has a purpose for us, that we're not here just to maintain what we have or what our parents have given to us. We're here to accomplish a mission and a purpose, and we can get focused on, on the mission. And that's an important thing for us to do. I want you to understand. It is true that the, we have a mission, a great commission. There is a danger, though, that our mission, the work of our ministry, can take the place of our pursuit of God himself. It, it's, it's like I've told you before about the man that I was talking to at a church in the low country of South Carolina. I had gone down to lead a conference. We were uh, studying some biblical truths and applying them to the life of the church. Had a chance to preach. He came up afterwards and said, something's missing. I don't know what. I've been been coming to church all my life, and I, I'm saved. I've been baptized. Uh, and I said, well, tell me, tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, well, you know, I may, listen to this. He said, I made a decision when I was a child. I was baptized. I went through Sunday school. I got a little wayward in my teenage years. But... I came back when my wife and I were married and had kids, and I taught Sunday school, and I was a department director in Sunday school. I was selected to be a deacon. I have been a part of this ministry in this community. I have been a part of that. And, and he gave me his CV, his curriculum vitae. He gave me his resume. What was missing? He gave me an extended testimony and never once mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. Do you understand the point? Sometimes our mission, our task, our good works that we studied, good works are good, don't misunderstand me, but they're good when they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, according to the revealed will of God in our life as we live in dependence upon Him. And that's a lot of big words strung together, but it's all the difference between me struggling and working and serving and seeking fulfillment in that, seeking to do good in that, versus me walking hand in hand with the giver of life and knowing him and resting in him and trusting him. And so maintenance is not good. Mission can supplant the relationship, what we need to do and what Paul takes these people to in the church at Colossae. When he prays all these great things that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will in every circumstance and in every situation, that their lives will will be fruitful, that will they will have good works that bear fruit, that they will increase in the knowledge of God. All these wonderful things. And he comes back and he ties it back in. There's only one source for this, these prayers to be answered. Only one source for this to become a reality in our life. And that's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we went back to verse 13 this morning in our reading was because Paul sums it up. He brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. What Christ accomplished on the cross is essential, and then now Paul turns our attention, the Holy Spirit turns our attention to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we can be known as the people who made the church last and kept the church going. Or we can be people who are known as hard workers for God. Or we can be people who are known as those who love Jesus 
and are loved by Him. And that's what I want. I want my reputation. I want your reputation. I want our reputation to be what, what, rather, what people say about us. Our reputation to be that we love Jesus. And that it's evident that we talk about Him. That we talk to Him. That we worship Him and adore Him. That we sing songs about Him. That He occupies our minds. And that He occupies our lives. People saying as though He were right there. And we do know that He is right here. People talking about us, look at how they love. And because as, as Jesus loved, even if they don't understand it, it becomes a testimony to them. So today, we'll look a little bit deeper at Colossians 1, just three verses. Verses 15, 16, and 17, which is a look at Jesus. What we are doing today, what the Holy Spirit's doing as we go through this text, is at least in part answering the prayer that Paul prayed, that they would increase in the knowledge of God. And I want us today, here's the end result of today's time spent together, that we increase our knowledge of God. It might be new facts, it might be new information, but maybe it's just a deeper understanding of the facts that we already know who Jesus is. So let's approach God in in prayer again and pray that He'll give us understanding. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word that You wrote for us, that You have preserved for us, that You bring to us. Thank you that uh, Christianity is not simply rules and regulations. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a uh, a choice that we make simply to to be righteous people. But Christianity is knowing Christ. It's it's a relationship, uh, an intimate and ever-deepening relationship with, with God himself, Jesus, God the Son. And so I pray that you'll give us additional understanding. I pray that you'll warm our hearts. I pray that you will make fresh and new truths that many of us have heard all of our lives, but that we'll apply them and we'll apply them deeply in our hearts. We'll meditate on them. We will rejoice in them. So, Father, we would see Jesus. We would learn of him. We would sit at his feet. We would know more about the precious Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start. We're going to go slowly. Now, the outline, if you're following along and you're taking notes, is very simple. This passage makes simple, propositional, declarative statements about who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is He? And so we have a statement. But every statement that is truth, every truth requires some type of response. And so we want to look at the truth, the statement, and then the response that is required. And we'll start, again, right there in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, look at the word image. What is an image? It's something you can see. How is God described? Invisible, something that you cannot see. Somehow this just kind of seems to not make sense. But it does make sense when we recognize deeply what is being said. God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. God is spirit. No man can see Him and live. This was our experience. This was the Jews' experience throughout Jewish history. As a matter of fact, what does uh, God think about images? What does God think about idols and statues? You guys remember? You remember the Ten Commandments? What's the first? That's what I have. Okay. All right, very good. (laughs) Worship only God. All right, only God. What is the second? No. 
No graven images. No images. Do you remember how long that lasted when, when God sent Moses to release the children of Israel out of Egypt? They got out into the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain. They begin to miss Moses. Aaron has already been appointed the high priest. They come to Aaron and they ask Aaron to do something. What do they ask him to do? To make a golden calf. Now this was not, again, worshiping Egyptian gods. They wanted an image representing Yahweh in their minds. How did God feel about that? What did he have them do? His anger was kindled. He had them break the statue down, grind it up, mix it with water, and had them drink it. Now, God is not a God who wants idols. He's not a God who wants statues. He's not a God who wants images. And yet, here we have in this passage, who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. It's important that we recognize what he's saying. This is, Jesus is, this babe in a manger who became a young man, who became a young itinerant preacher, this man. This man who, who got hungry and ate. This man who got thirsty and drank. This man who got tired and slept and rested. This man who had a vocabulary and he talked and he interacted with people. This man who got dirty with his walk into the wilderness and had to wash and have his feet washed. This man is the image of God, meaning he is God made visible. It is important to understand that he was not some sort of mystical or translucent avatar of God. He was eternal God taking on flesh, now visible. And I really started to stop here and just spend a lot of time just simply talking about the incarnation, God becoming flesh. But I want you to go through the process of looking at the questions in the application guide and reading Philippians chapter 2 and other passages of Scripture that talk about God taking, taking on flesh. And recognize, this is an astounding truth. Is it okay with God if we worship a man? Should, should, we, should we worship Moses? No, should we worship Abraham? David was great. I mean, he was a friend of God. Can we worship David? No. The Jews knew. We know that we are to worship no man. Worship God alone. And what we have in Jesus is God visible, demanding worship. I, I, this is one of the reasons that the Jewish leaders at the time had such trouble with Jesus. As a matter of fact, just let's look. John chapter 5. If you can find the Gospel of John in your Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In the fifth chapter of John, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And he's got some things that he says about himself that I think that we ought to, ought to take just a minute to make sure we understand what he's saying. We'll start in verse 19, the authority of the Son. This is John chapter 5. We'll start in verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, speaking of himself, capital S, the Son of God, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. What the, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. What? As God the Father raises the dead, gives them life. So also, what does the Son do? The Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one. 
but has given all judgment to His Son. Speaking of His power of giving life, speaking of His authority to render judgment, the Father has given this to the Son that all may honor. What is another word for honor? To revere, to worship, to glorify. That may honor the Son just as they honored the Father. How important was it that Jesus be worshipped as God? What does the next phrase say? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. I got to tell you, for the Jews of that day, if they did not believe that Jesus was God, they certainly believed he was nuts or a heretic or, or some, some sort of person who is coming in claiming to be God, and yet cle- Jesus clearly does so. Uh, Jesus is God. How's that for a statement? Jesus is God. He is not an avatar. He's not a representation. Jesus is God revealed. And the response that truth demands is the same response that the wise men gave when they came and found Jesus as a toddler in Bethlehem. How did they respond? They worshipped Him. Jesus is God and God alone is to be worshipped. And this means to put in His right place, to be exalted, to express adoration and affection and love, to lavish affection upon, to kneel before and to respect and to honor. The Bible repeatedly tells us the importance of this. Colossians chapter 2, just a couple, just the next chapter over, verse 9, we're told that in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, the, the fullness of the Godhead, dwelled in Him bodily. Do you remember the Gospel of John? John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And this light shone in darkness. You understand, that's a declaration that Jesus and God the Father are one. If you look down that chapter in John chapter 1, verse 14, we have the description that the Word, capital W, speaking of Jesus, became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Whose glory? The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I was looking at just the simple statements, I I keep going back. One of the great things about Scripture is is you just have these doxology moments, just these times of worship. And when the writer of Hebrews began his letter to the Jews who had come to faith in Christ, He talks about how that they had a word from God in times past through prophets and through writings. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, by Jesus, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, Jesus is God. He's not an academic study. He's not a good man. He's not a good teacher. He's not someone that you're supposed to model your life after. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, exalted above every king exalted above every nation, and we'll learn a little bit more about him that should make this even more uh, astonishing. But this is a poem that Paul wrote, or a hymn, and it's not in this place by accident. This Jesus, who had delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into his kingdom, 
who has redeemed us and has forgiven us is the one who can and answer Paul's prayer, the one that we've been studying, the one that he prayed for them. It is not just that, again, this is a man who reveals God. It is that Jesus is God revealed. And he's worthy of our worship. Alone worthy of our worship. I will tell you, we are made to worship. We're designed to worship. But too often we worship created things rather than the creator of all things. I won't take time this morning, but if you want to know the danger of worshiping the wrong things, read Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, you have a description of people who worship created things rather than the Creator. And so back to Colossians chapter 1, He is God, worship Him. He is the image of the invisible God. The next phrase is, He is the firstborn of all creation. Now sometimes, this statement that He is firstborn causes people problems. Wait a minute. Firstborn? You mean He was born First, that's actually not what this word means. P-R-O-T-O-K-O-S. Proto, however you pronounce it. <laughs> it's, it denotes more than simply birth order. As a matter of fact, most of the time it's used, it doesn't denote birth order. This is not what they would have heard. Jesus, we know, pre-existed creation. He is the agent of creation. He is prior to and distinct from and highly exalted above every creature and of all of creation, firstborn does not speak of birth order, but rather it speaks of a position, a rank, a place of preeminence. That which is of first importance, that which is is of highest value throughout Scripture and in Jewish and even in Roman culture. uh, The firstborn was not the eldest, but he was the one who would be the inheritor. He would inherit and assume the mantle of leadership for the family. He would carry on the family name. And in this context, is expressing Jesus' sovereignty over creation. And, and there's a psalm, Psalm 89. It's a lo- one of the longer psalms. But part of this is, is a description of David. And what it says in Psalms 89, 27, God speaking says, I will make him, David, my friend, my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. Not It doesn't mean born first. It means preeminent, the king of kings, higher than the kings of the earth. Six times in the scriptures, Jesus is declared to be the firstborn of God. Back in Romans chapter 8, we'll look at that later. Colossians 1, 15 and 18. Hebrews 1, 6. Hebrews 12. Revelation 1. And the point is, he's the king. He is the preeminent one. As the eternal son of God. Jesus is the Creator. He's preeminent. And He is the Creator. Verse 16 in Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Now, again, this is interesting to me. When we talk about in Genesis chapter 1, GPS, just a a week ago, two weeks ago, we talked about... Who created all things? God did. For what reason did He create all things? For His own glory. God is the Creator, and yet we have clearly identified here, clearly identified in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, clearly identified in Hebrews, the first chapter, God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is the Creator. 
He existed before all things. He created all things. And all things were created through Him. And all things were created for Him. Now, I don't know about you, but as a believer, this gives me a sense of security. The one who loves me, the one who cares for me, the one who demonstrates His love for me, that saved me, that walks with me, is the one who created all that is. Matter of fact, it's interesting how in the detail Paul goes with the words, for by him all things were created. What things? What are the things in heaven? That's the sky, and of course it's in space, and it's the presence of God. What all things? Things that were created on the earth, everything that's on the earth. What about the things I can't see? The visible things and the invisible things. What about not just material things, but structures and systems, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities? All things, two, th- two times there, all things and all things. I think Paul was simply making the emphasis that everything comes from the hand of a sovereign God. He hasn't missed anything. He is in control. All creation is created by Him. All creation is created for His glory. And we know that the earth declares the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. You guys remember Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. There's so much that, that, that we could just simply grasp from, from resting and trusting and knowing better our Creator God. Uh, last night we got to spend some, yesterday we got to spend some time with the grandkids, and last night we made s'mores. You guys know what s'mores are? They're really good. We put a fire in the fire pit. We uh, roasted marshmallows. I can tell you which of my grandsons you should trust to do that and which ones you should not trust to do that. But as the sun went down and as we were enjoying the fire and enjoying the chocolate and the graham crackers, we got to look up, and there was the moon, and the moon had basically diminished to a Cheshire cat grin. And uh, again, we got a little silly describing the moon. But Easton was out there, and we were talking about why you can only see one strip of the moon, though all the moon is there in the direction of the sun, and how the what you see when you look at the moon is actually not the moon itself. You're simply seeing the light that reflects from the sun and how that and you guys have seen the sunsets and you have seen the sunrises and you have seen how nature very nature declares the glory of our creator God Jesus himself when he was coming into Jerusalem the last week of his life his triumphal entry he said to those who would hush the crowds he says if you shut them up the very rocks will cry out you can read in Ezekiel which we have and we'll read more you can read in Revelations, how that there's coming a day when the very earth will praise God. The trees will clap their hands. I don't know what that looks like. But I do know that the God who made the tree... Listen, this is the God who cares about the sparrows in the trees. Far more than I do, I can tell you. This is the God who knows when they fall. This is the God who cares so much about birds that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 6, He tells you what to do when you find a bird's nest. No detail escapes His attention. And He's our God. He loves us and He pursues us and He cares for us. And because our God is the God of creation, we can trust Him. We can trust Him to know what's right. We can trust Him to know what's best. We can trust Him to do what's right. We can place ourselves totally in His hands. You remember the songs that we sing. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought 
of rocks and trees and skies and seas, His hands, the wonders wrought. Everything, all things, in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, or rulers, all things were created by Him. He has all things in His hand. He is the sovereign over all. He is the King above all kings. And this gives us security. Now, not only are all things made by Him, if you continue to read this passage, verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This speaks of his providence. Jesus holds all things together. He is the sustainer. The word that I use is a good theological word. It's frequently used in relationship to this passage of Scripture. And Jesus is the description of Christ and how God works through Christ, in Christ, how God, who is Christ, works to maintain and to care for and to provide for. There's a great word. It's providence. And providence speaks of the protective care of God as a spiritual power, as He cares for His creation. He sustains. Can I remind you that the God of creation Himself revealed by becoming a man, living without sin, tempted in every manner, just as we are, Willing to face judgment for sin, yours and mine. To forgive us, to free us, to redeem us, to make us His own. He is God. And we are to continually be... Listen, He is Abba Father. Get this. It's important. He is Abba Father. And we are to intimately know Him. And we are to intimately have a relationship with Him. And walk with Him. And talk with Him. And and uh, He allows us to, to depend upon Him. To know Him. He is transcendent, mighty God who spoke all that there is into being with the Word. And we can know Him. But we, we have to keep the, the, the balance between intimacy and reverence and honor for who He is. Yes, it's like Hugh Jackman's son, Oscar. That's just Dad. Yeah, it's a, it is just Dad. Yes, God is our Father. But it, it's, it, this is far better than Hugh Jackman, okay? This is the God of the universe that we can owe our allegiance and our respect and our honor to as we know Him and walk with Him and trust Him day by day. He sustains us. He keeps us. He cares for us. I know of no better description of Jesus' love for us than that which is found in Romans chapter 8. Now, I want this, if you, if you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, I want you to turn there. Romans chapter 8. Many have said, many theologians have said, there are a lot of people who have said through the years that there is no more important, no more vital chapter in all of Scripture than this one. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is encouraging the Christians at Rome. It's a diverse church made up of both Gentiles, Romans, and Greeks, and also made up of Jews. He's not actually been able to be there yet, so he gives them his theological primer, if you will. He gives them his doctrine, the, the, the teaching that God had given to him about the need for everyone to be saved and, how about, and about how salvation comes by faith through grace in Christ alone. And in chapter 8, he talks about the goodness of what God has done for us. And I want us to pick up in verse 31. So if you'll... Uh, he starts in verse 1 saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He talks about our inability to 
be righteous, but Christ succeeding that. It talks about our relationship with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and how He acts on our, our behalf. And then He ends up here in Romans chapter 8. Pick up in verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? What things? All this goodness of, of God through Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him, also with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, listen now. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. By the way, everything is in creation except for the Creator, God. Anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is the exhortation today? Listen, He's God. Worship Him. He's the Creator. You can trust Him. He's the God who keeps and holds you and carries you and is your strength. He's the sustainer. You can rest in Him. But here's the basic core exhortation that I have for us. Don't let your Christianity be a series of good behaviors. Don't let your Christian life be simply a disciplined lifestyle. Now don't misunderstand me. You ought to have a disciplined lifestyle. But it ought to be a lifestyle disciplined by the Holy Spirit of God. It ought to be a disciplined lifestyle sustained and enabled through the Holy Spirit of God as He indwells you. What is the Christian life? It's knowing Jesus. It's knowing Him. It's talking to Him. In prayer, it's listening to Him through prayer and meditation upon His Word. It's depending upon Him. It's living day by day with the knowledge and cognizance of His presence and then turning to and depending upon Him. Jesus is a person, and He is God. Father, I pray that we will know You, that we'll know You more, that we'll long to know You more, that we'll never substitute a relationship with You for, with just morals, that we'll never substitute a relationship with You with, with just behaviors or with just activities, even good activities. I pray that you will create in us a hunger and a passion to know more about you. To know more about your time when you were incarnate on earth 2,000 years ago. To understand more about how you and what you did and said and how you acted and reacted and responded. How you accomplished what you accomplished. How God worked in you, God the Father, and how you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was able to accomplish what only you could do as our creator, as our sustainer. I pray, Father, that as we fall more in love with you, that we will live lives more committed to increasingly glorifying you. 
The earth, are the earth is created for your glory. The heavens declare it. You call us to live for your glory. You call us to redeem the days. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to be those who increasingly know you and increasingly glorify you as we walk in obedience to you. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.